We have been in a, in a series of, of study narrated by an Old Testament character named Ezra, a priest. He describes a story of a nation who had tremendous loss. For 70 years, they had lost their land, they had lost their families, they had lost their friends, they had gone through incredible starvation and warfare. They had been abducted and taken to the land of Babylon and they had lost their culture, they had lost their worship, they had lost their reason for existence. But Jehovah God had made a promise that after the 70 years, he would begin to restore back what they had lost. And the way that he did it was just incredible. The king that was overseeing them now at that moment, Cyrus, king of Persia, announces that Jehovah God, whom he does not even worship, speaks to him. And he says, I've got to, I've got to let you know that you've got to go back and build a temple for this almighty God. And therefore, I'm going to send you back. And they begin this process of gaining back what they've lost. So we've been walking through this process of how to regain what we've lost. And if you have not been part of this series, we invite you to go on our website and download that. Grab the podcast and, and get caught up where we are now because the truths are just incredible for us in regaining those things that we thought we've lost. In that process, as we come to the today, one of the things that sticks out in my mind as I read that story, and hopefully you've read all the way through it by now, is that part of that process in regaining what we have lost is that in helping others regain what they have lost and in serving others in that process, we regain back what we've gained back part of what we've lost by just our serving. It's not just about us, but it's about the process of what God wants to do in us and through us. And so this morning, I've invited a friend of this congregation who's been here many times before, Steve Savlich, who, um, since he was with us last, has taken on this role as a vice president of Assist International that goes into really tough parts of the world to help people who are so marginalized and, and, and so in crisis, much more than we could ever even imagine. And to bring them hope and to, and to serve them that they can find the tangibles of God's presence and the reality of his love. He's going to share some of that with you this morning, but I've, I've assigned him a task to continue us in our study of Ezra. He's going to help us understand how we can jumpstart stalled efforts. And in that process, I want us to see that as we serve others in regaining what they've lost, we begin to regain what we've lost. Now, before Steve comes, I, I want to introduce you to his wife, Jan, because she's just, he's much a better person when she's around. And that's a good thing. Jan, would you stand? We welcome you this morning. And now would you please join me in welcoming Steve Savlage. Good morning to you. It was wonderful to be with you in worship again. Just appreciate the Lord's presence in that regard. I love the word the Lord gave Pastor Jack, and that was a word the Lord gave him that wasn't just good pastoring. And I thank you for that. Jan and I love to be in the company of your pastors. We love to be with your leadership team and with this congregation. We thank the world of you, and we thank you for your love for Jesus and your love for the world. I am going to uh, get this out of my holster. It's turned off. And I never thought I would do this, but I have become an electronic Bible reader. I never thought I could give up the pages and the feel of the book. But either my laptop or my phone, I, I, I now use my Bible this way, so I'm going to be setting this on the podium because for the next few minutes, this is my Bible. By the way, you were wired for God. You were Bluetoothed into the kingdom. This phone knows where I am, it knows who I want to talk to, and knows who wants to talk to me. And so if you ever wonder if God hears prayer, if the Lord knows where you are, if he really understands what you're thinking, if tiny human beings can put this, this thing finds me all over the world. If tiny little human beings can do that, how much more this great God who made everything and everyone. Well, this morning, as Pastor Jack mentioned, we are continuing the Old Testament book of Ezra series, and I have been given the privilege and assignment by Pastor Jack to cover a critical portion in the story of Ezra. 
and in the story of each human life. While the circumstances vary for each of us, the essential elements of this ancient story are re-engaged by every 21st century life. The context varies, but the content is the same and offers to each of us the opportunity to succeed in the face of unexpected delays and opposition. In the world of stories, many well-loved and oft-repeated ones start with the familiar phrase, once upon a time. The same stories end with a very familiar phrase, and can you remember what it is? And they, and they lived happily ever after. Now, for our 21st century minds, these are words rightfully reserved for pretend only. Fairy tales and fiction, not the stuff of real life. Yet, as we set ourselves to pick up the real-life story of Ezra and the truths which intersect our own real lives, I want to offer to you the opening and closing line Jesus offers to every life which will come near to him and stay near him. For all who will respond to his unqualified invitation to come and stay, the opening line for the story of every life is this. All things are possible with God. The opening to every chapter of your life and the opening to every day of your life begins with the same line. When your eyes went blank this morning, it doesn't matter what the first thought that entered your mind was. It doesn't matter what you woke up facing, good or bad. In the reality of God and His kingdom, your day and your life and the chapter you're currently in begins with the same line. All things are possible with God. Now the conclusion, the very last page of our, the chapter of our lives, all ends the same way. And it ends with this line. And this is the line Jesus desires to write, having written the first line. The very last line of every life that follows Christ is this. And they really did live happily ever after. You can follow this through the scriptures. You'll find the people martyred during the great tribulation of this earth, those who were literally beheaded for Jesus' sake, in heaven they really are living happily ever after. They have no regrets. They aren't asking the Lord, why? Why did you allow it? Why me? Things that we often ask ourselves. Every life begins. Every chapter begins. Every day begins with the same storyline. All things are possible with God. And for those who come near and stay near, Every life ends with this line, and they really did live happily ever after. This, my friends, is not pretend or fairy tale. This is real life on planet Earth. Well, we all know a lot goes on between the first and last line of a story. And so before we take up the story of Ezra in this portion, I want to set the context of our lives with three dynamics that are true whenever we engage God and His promises. The dynamics are lived out in the life of Ezra and in the lives of all who embrace and welcome God's promises. Recognizing and affirming them will help us form accurate expectations. Our lives are filled with expectations. They have great power over us. Even inaccurate expectations have power over us. And so it's important for us to have accurate ones. So when it comes to the promises of God, the first thing we want to affirm is this. They take longer than you think. The promises of God take longer than you think. Abraham left with God's promise of a son. Now, I don't know how long he thought it was going to take, but 25 years later, in reproductive mortality, the Scripture says that Sarah was postmenopausal and Abraham was as good as dead. 25 years later, Isaac is born. Say it out loud with me, would you? The promises of God take longer than you think. Let's say it together. The promises of God take longer than you think. Not only so, but they're harder than you think. The promises are harder than you think they're going to be. Now, we think this way because they're, they're God's promises and we're feeling God's presence when He gives them to us. But at the end of the day, they're harder than you think. Recount with me the story of Moses at the burning bush. And you'll remember that in that exchange with God and these wonderful promises that He was given, God gives him a couple of great signs. 
The staff gets thrown down, turns into a snake. He picks the staff up. It's a staff, uh, snake up. It's a staff again. Then there's the leprosy thing, right? Put your hand in your cloak. Nothing up the sleeve. Presto, right? Take it out. It's leprous. Put it back in. Not leprous. So I don't know what Mo thought about how easy or hard it would be, but here's what I know. Things got way worse in Egypt before they got better. Do you remember the story? I mean, they start saying things like, what have you done to us? Why didn't you leave us alone? It was better before you came because the promises were harder than they thought they would be. We're talking about reality, about lives lived out in the words and promises of Jesus and what it takes for us to recognize with accurate expectations the processes that God, the dynamics that he has at work in every life that follows him. The promises of God take longer than you think and they're harder than you think. But here's, here's, the, here's the great truth. They're worth the wait and they're worth the effort. They're worth the wait and the effort. They will take longer than you think and they will be harder than you think. But they're worth the wait. They're worth the effort. My favorite picture of this, of course, is, is Joseph and his life story. A young boy with dreams, dreams from God. And you know that took way longer than he thought. And you know for Joseph it was way harder than he thought. First his brothers were going to kill them. And then being good brothers, they decide why kill them when we can sell them. And so off to Potiphar's house in Egypt he goes. He works really hard and, and he is noticed by Potiphar's wife, who currently stars in most of the sitcoms. She is a desperate housewife. And one day she grabs him by the cloak and says, come to bed with me. And he runs out of her presence. And his line is, I can't sin against God. It's not against Potiphar. I can't sin against God. Cloak in hand, you remember, he goes to jail for doing the right thing. And he's not in jail for one or two years, but a dozen. The promises of God are harder than you think and they take longer than you think, but they are worth the wait and they are worth the effort. Every day that Joseph got up in prison, the same storyline began. With God, all things are possible. And day after day, he laid his head down in that jail and nothing appeared to be changing. But my dear friends, this is the truth of a life that follows God. There comes a day. And in one day, in one day, Joseph went from Pharaoh's prison to Pharaoh's throne. And there he stayed for the rest of his life. This is the truth about the promises of God. With these real-life dynamics in view, we turn our attention to Ezra, God's promises, and the storyline which is not only worth reading, but worth living. We pick up the story in the place of unexpected opposition and delay. The decree to begin the work was issued in 538 BCE. That's before Common Era, now the scholarly way to say that. But it was during the first year of King Cyrus. Sixteen years later, the opposition was able to interfere. The work was stopped under the order of King Artaxerxes and stalled for two whole years. Chapter 4 concluded with these words. The work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped, and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Where we begin in chapter 5 at verses 1 and 2, the very first thing we read is this. All the prophets, at that time, I'm sorry, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied in the name of God, in the name of the God of Israel, to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, responded by beginning the task of rebuilding the temple of God in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them and helped them. In this stalled place, the word of God is spoken, and they begin again. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we turn our attention to this story written by your hand and admit that you are writing stories and wanting to write stories in each of our lives. And so for this we pray, let the finger of God write on us the message of his love, of his greatness, we do welcome your promises. Lord, I pray for the weary and tired, as Pastor Jack brought that word, that you would refresh them, us, and that we would stand true to you, that you may fulfill your good purpose. We pray this gratefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the devastation, drag, and inertia of opposition, the word of the Lord comes to reaffirm, refresh, and invigorate, pardon me, those who had set out to do his will, and receive his promises. 
It's like a wake-up call to the reality which has never changed. All of us can find ourselves having been disoriented by the unexpected. We are not told the exact words the prophets spoke, but we are given a crystal clear understanding of their message. The message, the promise, the plan, the God who gave them has not changed. Believe the promises. Welcome the message. Engage the work they require. Recover the prophetic edge. Recover the prophetic edge. What has he said? What has he purposed to do? What has he put in your heart? Recover that edge and start acting like it. I want to offer a couple of notes about the prophetic as we think about this in our own lives. The first one is that the prophetic does not mean never before said or previously unknown. For something to qualify as prophetic, it does not always have to contain brand new information. God, through the prophetic, is often restating the same message. In fact, if you track out prophetic utterances in the Old Testament, you'll find, and this goes through the New Testament as well, that the prophets operate this way. They begin by saying, this is what God wants to do, this is what God wants to do, this is what God is going to do. It's that, that's the message. Then while God is doing it, the prophets say, God is doing this, God is doing this, God is doing this. And then after he's done, the prophets say, this is what he did, this is what he did, this is what he did. The prophetic does not have to have brand new information to qualify for prophetic. And in fact, in our story here, that's exactly how the prophets are operating. They're not bringing new information to bear, but rather they are restating what God has already promised and called the people to do. The second observation is this. The prophetic does always mean spirit-infused. Spirit-infused. The prophetic word is not only true, but vibrant and infused with the irrepressible authority of heaven and the power of resurrection life. Prophetic words live. They live in a unique dynamic. They're more than true. They're living. And this is essential as we discern and recognize what is truly prophetic and what isn't. Because everything in the kingdom lives. Rocks live, living stones. Words live, living words. Sacrifices live, a living sacrifice. Everything in the kingdom lives. And so the prophetic is not always brand new information, but it is infused with vibrant, irrepressible life. It always smacks of the irrepressible life of Jesus. Revelation 19.10 says this, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For us to not let this edge work in us and through us is to unintentionally blunt the testimony of the Lord Jesus, to somehow unintentionally obscure his person and his work. It's important for us as followers to embrace the prophetic, to recognize it's not always new information, but it is infused, spirit-infused words. It's not that we're always getting something new. It's that we're living because everything in the kingdom lives. Well, that brings us to responding to the prophetic. So when these prophetic things come, what happens? Well, the first thing we know is the prophetic will always involve our choices, even if we aren't the prophets speaking. When that word comes, that promise comes, that move of God's Spirit comes, we immediately are put in the category of those making choices. You remember the story from the Old Testament of the, the great general Naaman who had leprosy, and he goes to see the prophet for a cure. And the prophet has a word for him. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cured. And it made the general crazy mad. He starts heading back to home thinking this prophet's not worth much. See, he's got a choice to make. But there happened to be a Hebrew slave in his company. And he asked a very important question. If the prophet had given you something great to do, wouldn't you have done it? So now that he's asked you this small thing, why wouldn't you do it and be healed? Naaman had a choice to make when that word came to him. He would, in, he would embrace it and act accordingly or not. And his healing, his healing hung in the balance. And so he turns aside and he goes to the Jordan River and he has to dip seven times because God said so. Six won't do. And the seventh time he came up clean. This man becomes so in love with the God of Israel, he takes home basketfuls of dirt saying, I want to take the dirt home with me and have it near me because this is where God touched me. This is where that prophetic word found me. So my friends, the prophetic will always call you to make a choice. 
Everything in the kingdom is by grace. It's just not without choice. Everything in God's kingdom is by grace. It's just not without choice. So the prophetic always involves our choices, and the prophetic always involves faith. It always involves faith. Faith is required of all. Will Hebrews uh, 11.6 come up on the screen? Oh, it's beautiful. Could we read this aloud together? Will you join me? And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. When the prophetic moves, I'll have a choice to make and it will always require of me faith. Faith is required of all. Faith is required of every day. Romans 1.17 is going to make it to our screen, I do believe. Join me, would you? For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. From first to last. So faith isn't something I engage only when I give my life to Jesus. Faith is something I must engage every day. Every day, my life begins with with the storyline All things are possible with God, and every day I'm required to make choices and engage faith. The good news is, even mustard seed-sized faith goes a long way with God. He's not asking me how much I have. He's just asking me to use. In fact, he's requiring me to use what I have. Well, how can I know if I'm using my faith? I'm glad you asked. I am prepared to answer that question. Here's our next statement. Faith always involves acts of obedience. Faith is not merely cerebral or theological or philosophical. Faith is, in fact, an energy-producing reality that requires me to act. How can I know if I'm engaging my faith, big or small? How can I know if I'm engaging? I'll know how I'm acting, how I'm thinking, the attitudes and words that I'm speaking, if they are, in fact, in line with what I think I'm believing for. On the screen, James 2.26 will appear. Let's read this one together. Join me. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Wow. How many have been to a funeral? Just about all of us. And I promise you, before it's all over, you will be at one. I mean, actuarially speaking, the death rate does hover right around 100%. And we all know at that place that it is, in fact, a body. It's not a piece of body. It's a dead one. There's a difference. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That faith requires me to act. It will involve an act of obedience, which brings us to our working definition of faith. It comes to us from Romans chapter 1, verse 5. It'll be on the screen because your media team is excellent. Let's read it together. Through Jesus and for His name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. To the what that comes from faith? To the obedience that comes from faith. So this brings us to a working definition of faith. Why? Because the prophetic will always involve my choice, will always involve my faith. And how can I know if I'm using my faith? I'll know it if I'm acting, if I'm obeying what the Word is calling me to do. It's not about how I feel. It's all about how I act. Here is the working definition of faith. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. And if God doesn't act, you're cooked. I I always put cooked in capitals. Capital C, capital O, capital O, capital K, capital E, capital D. Cooked. And when you read your Bibles, this is in fact exactly how the faithful step out their faith. So Noah is called to build an ark. It will take him 120 years because God is going to rain water on this earth for 40 days and 40 nights and flood the world. How many days had it rained before the great flood? Anybody know? Zero. No rain had fallen on the earth because a great mist went up and watered the earth at that time. Noah is called to labor. The promises of God take 
longer than you think. He's called to labor and build an ark for 120 years without one drop of rain. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. And if God doesn't act, everybody knows. So about that thing in your backyard, Noah. Condos. I was really thinking condos. You can sit the people in groups of 50, but you can't feed them on one small lunch. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. And if God doesn't act, everybody knows. Because the prophetic requires faith, the kingdom requires faith, every day requires faith, and faith requires an action. Acts of obedience. Now our flesh, our flesh wants acts of God followed by our promise to obey. You know, so if you were in the boat when Jesus was walking on the water, Peter's crazy. Lord, if it's you, bid me come walk to you on the water. That would not, if I was the apostle John, I would have said, Lord, if it's you, have Peter come walk to you on the water. Peter knows he can't walk on water, but he is going to have to get out of the boat. And when he does, there will be an act of God or there won't. So let me just help you for just a minute this morning. Doubt and unbelief has the best theology on the planet. But doubt and unbelief will never do anything. So let's, let's paint the picture of crossing the Jordan River. And the Word of God, the promise of God was to wade in. And when your sandals touch that water, it's going to stand up in a heap and everybody will go through on dry land. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. And if God doesn't act, everybody knows your sandals will squeak for the next week. Well, doubt and unbelief will, in fact, get on its knees at the Jordan River. And it will start making confessions. Oh, Yahweh, you are the great God who delivered us through Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And you parted the Red Sea. And in the wilderness, you rained manna for 40 days. Oh, Yahweh, part the waters. God of heaven, move against the waters that we may go in and take the land. But see, the promise was for them to wait in. The command was for them to wait in acts of obedience followed by acts of God. And if God doesn't act, everybody knows you're cooked. And then doubt and unbelief gets up off the bank and dust slacks off and says, well, I guess it wasn't God. But faith takes the step. Faith knows it can't make the water stand up in a heap. Faith knows it can't feed 5,000 families on one small lunch. Faith knows it can't make it rain. Faith knows these things. But faith is responding not just to a promise, but to a person. And that person makes good his word. We're talking about the life of Ezra and the storyline that God is writing, not just in this ancient story, but in the 21st century lives we are living out. Because my righteous ones will live by faith from first to last. That's how we come into the kingdom. We have to believe and then we have to act. We pray a prayer. We welcome the Lord into our lives, but God still has to act. Because if you read your Bible, you'll know He has to put your name in a book. And on that last day, if your name is not written there, you are cooked. <laughs> so we act in obedience, and then God acts. And then God gets the credit and the glory, and we have the privilege of working this out. And so think with me now. The work has come to a stop. And the prophetic word comes back again, this life-infused word. And it's not new information. It's not some new tingly thing. It's, hey, remember, remember what I said? Do it. Remember, what, remember why you came here? Do that. Do it now. That was the word. It wasn't brand new, but it was spirit-infused. And it required a choice of the leaders and of the prophets and of the people. And of the people, they had to choose. And that choice would involve faith. And faith always involves acts of obedience. So Ezra, the prophets, and those with them do act. They re-engage the word, the promise, which had not changed even before the king's edict. Once they begin, they are immediately confronted again by the opposition. You know, questions and reports can be intimidating. Who gave you, I read from Ezra, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? 
They also asked for a list of the names of all the people who were working on the temple. But because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until a report was sent to Darius and he returned his decision. The acts of obedience which faith requires do not require us to be dismissive or disrespectful of the authorities. Rather, with humble reliance on God's acts, we engage the promise and we honor the authorities. See, Ezra and his friends appeal to the authority. They don't rebel against it. You want us to stop? We think we're supposed to be doing this. Let's write a letter to the king. But they keep working while that letter goes out. There's a difference between respectful disagreement and rebellion or riot. So the apostles before the Sanhedrin are forbidden to speak in Jesus' name, something they cannot comply with. But they don't get rebellious or disrespectful. They just say, you judge whether it is right for us to obey men or God. We can't help but tell what's happened to us. And they're released, and they go out and continue to embrace the word, the promise which was given to them. Let me talk to you about one of our projects in Darfur, Sudan. Can we have a slide, please? There we go. Sudan, Darfur. We're doing a work, next slide, in the IDP camp just outside of Nala, where we're building this school building for a school that is going to, it is educating the children who live in a 36,000-person internally displaced camp. These, these women and children, mostly just a few men live there. This is when the whole thing is going on with the gingerweed and the, they come down and they kill all the men. And so these people are living in these hovels and we're working a school project with them. And it's, we're adding the third grade this year. I'll, I should be in Darfur at the end of this month. And we'll be dedicating the project. We, I don't have a picture of the completed school, but that's what's working on. Next, next slide. Here is a teacher and an administrator of our school in one of the classrooms. So we're working this out, and the sheikhs of uh, this area gave us the land to build the school on, which is marvelous. And so we start the construction process. We're adding a grade every year because it takes five years to break the cycle of illiteracy, five years in a row. If you don't do five years in a row, then you become functionally illiterate. And so we're building this school, and the sheikhs say to us, so tell us about this school. So we pick the headmistress or headmaster, the principal. We choose the curriculum. They're all good with that. And, they, and, and then we say, and it's for boys and girls. And they say to us, you can't do that. In our culture, we don't mix the classes, the sexes. It has to be for boys or girls. Now, in this part of the world, it's mostly for boys. The first, and when children drop out of school, it's always the girls who drop out first. That's because of family pressure and cultural trappings. So they say, sorry, you can't have it for both. So we, we respond to them. We're talking about honoring the authority while you're doing a word you feel God has called you to do. We say, well, we really want it to be for both. And so they considered for a while and they sent word back, sorry, we don't do that here. You have to pick boys or girls. And so we, we thought a while longer and then we said to them, we really want it to be for both. But if you're going to make us choose, we choose girls. Two days later, they sent back word, okay, it can be for both. <laughs> going to change the lives of these kids. Because when you're doing that word and when you're acting in faith and when you're stepping out, opposition will come from an unexpected source. These kids are so marginalized already. Why wouldn't these sheikhs just leave them alone? Fair enough. If you won't build the schools for them, we'll do that. You won't educate them, we'll do that. Why would they hassle us? It's hard for our American culture to figure that part out. But we did not dishonor the authorities. We did not go on a rampage. We just kept dialoguing. Here's what we really want. Well, okay, if you're going to make us pick. And now here we are. It's awesome. School, by the way, starts in June in that very hot part of the world. Last slide. Sorry, last slide. Student with the certificate. Look at that beaming face and some of the staff that teaches. Isn't that awesome? This is the work that's going on right now, right now as we sit here, and it's a wonderful work. Then we see pray for favor. Pray for favor. The appeal process is in motion, and chapter 6 records that awesome conclusion. Not only are these people right in doing the work of God's promises, but those who oppose them are now required to bring assistance to them. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. 
While no prayer is recorded in our text, biblical evidence and personal experiences would seem to affirm that these folks prayed about this consistently. Praying for favor is always the right response. As we return to the promise and assignment God has given us, we must also be those who pray. Remember that faith will involve our actions and our words. That faith and prayer are not magical formulas, but they're a personal response to God who is my God. They're not formulas, they're personal responses to God who is my God. When you think about prayer, please don't believe that prayer was invented in a foxhole. I think lots of people start praying there. But prayer was not our invention. Prayer was God's creation, a mechanism of grace that he created and committed to. Prayer was his idea. Prayer was his idea. Turn your phone on and start talking because he's listening. In fact, Jesus makes it very plain that prayer is not us trying to get God's attention, but rather responding to the God who has already given us his attention. Prayer is not us shooting up flares hoping somebody's looking. Prayer is us responding. Before you call, I can answer. Before you think it, I know what you're thinking. Before you speak it, I know what you're going to say. I see you when you're walking and and when you're sitting, when, when you're on the way and when you're not. Prayer is that personal response. And praying for favor is a big deal. In Isaiah 40, the Lord says, All the nations are a drop in the bucket. And I've been in a ton of nations now. They're a drop in the bucket, but you, well, you're like little you lambs that I'll just scoop up and hold close in my chest. They're nothing, but you're all something. Let's have the slides. The nation of Mali, or the map, I mean. Do we have a map? We had a map. <sighs> West Africa. Bamako's down in that kind of lower left-hand corner. One of the larger landmass nations, very arid, very dry. And uh, our Assembly God missionary, David Fauzi Arzuni, and, and the Dupont G Hospital, we went to do a medical project there. And here is Assistant International's Bob Paget on the left, and there is Fauzi, David Arzuni, gowning up as we were doing our, our, our pre-planning trip. And I've been in many surgical theaters now, gowned and, and, and garbed, as we assess the hospitals. And so what we did is we brought all of the monitoring equipment, brand new equipment, from ICU. And we brought the medical staff to train, the biomeds to train. And what we do is, is we went to the Minister of Health and said, we want to bring this gift to your nation. With us, Bob and I, in the room with the Minister of Health, was Arzuni and the, the Assembly of God superintendent. Mali is a Islamic nation because 99% of its adherents are Muslims, but it is not an Islamic republic. And so there's technically freedom of religion. And so this woman here in the middle, standing next to Faust, is the Minister of Health. And we met her and said, here's what we want to do. And she said, why do you want to do this? And how did you hear about us? And we pointed to our missionary and our national pastor. And we said, these men love your country. And they have asked us to come here and do this. And we would not do this without them. And this project cannot happen without them. Because we discovered that tangible acts of love and relational connections, the service that Pastor Jack mentioned, when we serve people, what happens is tangible acts of love and relational connections are the pages that you can put the name and words of Jesus on and be heard and be heard. And so we set about to do this. And it was very interesting. Do we have one more slide or is that the last one on Molly? Was that it? Let's go back to it for just a minute if we could. I think there might be one more, but if not, go back to the one we had. I want you to look at the Minister of Health. The president came to cut the ribbon. President Torrey came and cut the ribbon at our ICU. It was covered on national TV. And this Muslim woman, the Minister of Health, gave a national, uh, 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 a, um, a speech on national TV is what I'm trying to say. Gave a speech on national TV about this ICU unit. Four times on national TV, the Muslim Minister of Health thanked the Assembly of God mission for this project. Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. Faith in action, tangible acts of love, serving the interests of another, that the goodness of the Lord can go forward in our lives and through our lives. I want to tell you just one story. So it was the day before the dedication, and I was in a room full of the elite of Molly's medical field. 
And, and Bob, was ta- our president, was talking through the details of this project masterfully. It was all being translated by the missionary because it's French-speaking. I felt this nudge in my heart. May I say something? And so, uh, by all means. So I stood up and I said, I want you to know that all the people who gave the seed money for this project are followers of Jesus, as am I. And I went on about a five-minute ten with translation little Jesus chat to a room full of Muslims at the end of this project. And when I finished my little talk about God's will and Jesus' prayer, and here we are, I was absolutely stunned at what happened. When I finished my, when I finished my little sermonette, the room full of Muslims burst into applause. They burst into applause. Now, friends, I preached 14 years at Willamette Christian Center. How many times do you think they burst into applause? (laughs) Tangible acts of love, acts of obedience, and relational connections are the pages that we can put the name and words of Jesus on and be heard. We're talking about praying for favor and favor coming. We did projects in Vietnam that got pastors out of jail, and now there are 57 Assembly of God churches who are able to meet openly. And we're going to be doing another project in Vietnam next year. Brings us to our conclusion, because we're talking about jump-starting. See, what happened in this procedure is, as they were following God, this opposition and delay came, and a jump-start needed to happen. Jump-starts happen by intentional actions that recognize and engage God's will. As we prepare to conclude, let's just bring a story in from the life of Jesus. It's recorded in all four Gospels. We call it the triumphal entry. It's the time when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and the crowds are shouting. And what's going to happen is a 600-year-old prophecy is going to be fulfilled. In fact, I think we have the words, just two verses, and I'd love to read those together if we could. Will you join me? As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now here we are in the middle of God's prophetic and awesomely redemptive purposes. Jesus is making it plain that everything the law and prophets have written about him will be fulfilled. A six-century-old prophecy, along with all the others from Genesis 3.16 forward, are reaching their fulfillment. God's will on earth is going to be accomplished for the whole earth, for every man, woman, and child, every nation, tribe, and tongue. Every promise God has given will become yes for the whole earth in and through the Lord Jesus. And the events which take place during this week, the eternal destiny of every human being is hanging, depending on Jesus of Nazareth, and the fulfillment of God's will. And yet, in every account we read, it's amazing to me, Jesus had to get his own donkey. I mean, if God were going to cash in on one of his 600-year-old prophecies, shouldn't it happen more serendipitously? I mean, should Jesus have to ask for his own colt to ride? Shouldn't someone just magically show up with it since we're talking about the awesome will and promises of God? I mean, Jesus won't have to ask Judas to betray him or the disciples to desert him or the Jewish and Roman authorities to crucify him. And yet, in the middle of God's will and God's promises, Jesus will have to take an action, a jump start, if you will, to, to, to see, to line up his life with the prophetic utterances that God has. Why? Acts of obedience followed by acts of God. Jesus himself will act. As we consider our place on this planet and in God's will, we do have an active and important part to play. Please know and remember everything in His kingdom and will are by grace, but they're not without choice. And Jesus will choose intentionally to recognize the moment He is in and to act in keeping with God's will. He will engage the purpose for which He came. This, my dear friends, is the point and call for each of us. God's will requires intentional acts, often a jumpstart to that which is stalled. Like Jesus, there are certain points of God's will we already know. We're called, invited, commanded, and expected to engage them, not to wait around for some serendipitous and wondrous moment when the stars align and music starts playing and there's magic in the air. 
We recognize the moment in God's will. We recognize His voice. We recognize His promise. We start or jumpstart that which we know God has spoken and is doing and is calling us to do. I'm closing with a story from the little island of Zanzibar and a donkey in a unique form. Zanzibar is just there off the coast. And uh, what happened is that there's a Zanzibarian. Next slide, please. A Zanzibarian right there, Pastor Dixon. And on the island of Zanzibar is the David Livingston property. And Pastor Dixon, an Assembly of God pastor, had it in his heart and mind to put a church and a school on that property because it was just empty except for the, 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 the ancient graveyard that was on Livingston property. The, the Anglican Church, Church of England, owns the property. So this was in Dixon's heart. And so he writes the Church of England. He says, I'd like to buy the Livingston property. They write back, what do you want it for? He says, I want to put a church and a school on it. They say, if you'll put a church and a school on it, we'll give it to you. And they did. Problem, unexpected delay in opposition to that word. Now, Zanzibar is a part of Tanzania, and Tanzania is a republic, so there is technically religious freedom. But all of the people in the building department on the Zanzibarian island are Muslim. And they always found a reason to deny Pastor Dixon's building permit. And so we went to the island of Zanzibar, Assist International, and we put an ICU unit in the hospital there. We did the same kind of thing, brought all the monitors, we brought all the medical staff and biomedical staff, we warranty all the equipment for a year, we, we uh, give all the consumables the unit will need for a year, so we know that unit will get up and run and stay running. And we put in an ICU unit. It was a donkey in disguise. It was a jump start to Pastor Dixon's vision. Let me tell you what happened. We got back from the project, and our president received a letter from the Zanzibarian Minister of Health. And here's what he said. The Muslims come and build mosques, and you came and gave our people an ICU unit. And now there are eight Assembly of God churches with property on the island of Zanzibar, magically, if you will. The building department reversed their decision and Pastor Dixon began to build. I've preached in that church. I've preached in that church. Because there are moments in God's will when His will will require an act of service, an act beyond the immediacy of your own dynamic. And we came and gave that act of service with Pastor Dixon, and the doors flew open. And now we have eight churches with property in the islands of Zanzibar. Tangible acts of love and relational connections are the pages that we put the name and words of Jesus on and are heard. So as we come to this close this, this morning, is there something God has said to you that's laying dormant? A word that's been delayed or opposed and you're kind of wondering, what am I going to do? Is your heart open to hearing His call? And would you allow for that promise spoken to be refreshed in you? Would you lay down all your history with it right now? And would you let that line that Jesus writes over every day you live be written yet again over this promise that with God... All things are possible. Would you throw your heart open, not just to a plan and to a promise, but to a person? Would you throw your hearts open to Jesus and let that prophetic edge find you? Let it be recovered, renewed, restored in you. And as you think about that, are there acts of obedience that you need to engage to partner with your faith and prayers? Is there a donkey that you need to bring into the picture? Or maybe one you'd help someone else bring? Because this is how it works. The storyline of Ezra, my friends, is your storyline and mine if we're going to follow the Lord and see His goodwill done on earth like it happens in heaven. Is there some donkey you can, you can bring the Lord that He could pack something on and when it's all over, it'll be greater and bigger than you ever thought it was going to be? And then, would you, who would you tell? I've thrown my heart open to the Lord and to His prophetic word or I'm recovering a promise that He's given me. I'm allowing Him to speak to that yet again. And, 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 and here's an act of obedience that I, I know I need to do to embrace this by faith. Is there, who would you tell so that agreement and accountability could inspire your way forward? Let's jumpstart whatever has stalled and let's live out the storyline Jesus intends. Our days really do begin with everything is possible with God. And our lives really will conclude and they lived happily ever after.
I first want to encourage you to follow through with the directives that we received today. What is it, the promise that is stalled? What is it that you need to do? And then tell someone what you're going to do. Follow through with that. We're going to conclude our gathering and prepare yourself to do that with an expression of worship through giving so that you that have come prepared to give your tithes and your offerings to God do that. But in addition to that, as we're asking God to help us restore individually and even corporately things that we think we've lost, we must continue in this serving process. We were part of the team that helped make possible the heart monitoring uh, system and, and, and the, the unit that was put in the Poor People's Hospital in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam several years ago. We did that as a congregation. And it's made, it's made a difference in lives. It saved a lot of people. And by that, I'm talking just physically saved them. And others have come to know Jesus as a result of that. Uh, Steve, as, as you're looking into the future, what are some of the projects you're heading out to do to, to help people now and, and to uh, where Assist International is going? I, I'm, thank you for asking, Pastor. I'm very excited about where I'm going next from here, which is back to Sudan. And I will be up in Darfur for the dedication of this school. But we're doing a project with our Assembly of God missionary, Dick Brogdon. And, and w- Dick is still in Sudan, he says, because of Assist International. And, but the project we're doing is at a place called Abba Island, like Abba Father. It's the heart and soul of, of Sudanese Islam. And we've contacted a a, a hospital there that wants to become a teaching hospital. And we're going to do a a project there that will allow for this hospital to become teaching status, ICU and OR. And when Dick contacted the administration, what he told them was, everything that we do, we want to do in the name and spirit of Jesus of Nazareth. And the hospital administration has said, we welcome you. We'll be bringing this act of love to the heart and soul of Sudanese Islam for the, for, for the sake of the name and for the sake of the people who live there. That's the next project we have rolling. Our team will also be in Cuba, and then we'll also be out in Africa again. So, yeah. And, uh... So as you're preparing yourself for the giving this morning, would you take an envelope and just write on it, Assist International, because we would like to be generous this morning in helping support those hospital units that are going into Darfur and into Cuba and into places in Africa. And we can do that. We can, we can be part of that. You're a generous people, and, and what you do will save lives. And we want to be part of that in the name of Jesus because it makes a difference. And in doing so, it will help us recover things that we've lost just by our serving. So would you prepare yourself to do that? If you're going to write a check, just make it out to Erie First Assembly. And everything that is, that is designated assist, just write down assist, uh, will go to this ministry. I'm going to ask the ushers to come, please.